0: Good morning, everyone. Oh, my gosh. We are in day two of Burley Festival. This is exciting. Um, We've never done two days, so we're trying a thing. And so far, it's, like, really cool and great. So um, welcome to our first session of the day, this wonderful, wonderful panel with this amazing lineup of artists and intellectuals and uh, authorities in the field of performing arts, classical music, academia, you, you name it, we've got it here. So I'm just extremely honored to all of these people who have um, who've taken out their t- time and their busy, busy schedules to have this panel and have this talk that's so important. Especially now, again, in this Burley Festival where we're talking about um, this wide river, right? About... Um, how African American spirituals and the Negro spiritual has influenced so many different genres of music and also society and how black artists have uh, have influenced that. Also how this music goes into how, how, we, how we shape the industry and our performing arts industries based upon um, a lot of sometimes, oftentimes social inequities, um, but also how we can change and make that better. So this is gonna be an exciting time. I'm gonna hand it off to these Really really dope uh, moderators the host of So firstly I want I do want to say this we have like three podcasts represented I don't I think this is also another we, we're having a lot of firsts for this Burley festival This is another first <laughs> for this Burley festival the host of classically black podcasts. Uh, I'm gonna turn it over to Katie Brown and Delaney Harris mm-hmm.
1: Hey y'all, it's Delaney. I'm a double bassist and a rising senior at the Eastman School of Music.
2: <laughs> and it's Katie. I'm a recent graduate of the Eastman School of Music where I got my masters in viola performance and music education. And we're the host of Classically Black Podcast.
1: Where we talk all things classical music and being black in the profession.
2: With trap beats playing in the
1: background.
3: Right.
1: <laughs> 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 now you may be wondering how a girl from Inglewood, California, who grew up playing in an El Sistema-inspired program and never took a private lesson until uh, about my junior year of high school, ended up at the Eastman School of Music. Well, the truth is, black people have always been curators and creators and uh, performers of classical music, and we always have, we always will be, and we're not going anywhere.
2: You also might be wondering how a black girl from Chicago who started viola late ended up with a classical music podcast, especially since I'm a lover of both Cardi B and Hezekiah Walker. However, you, kn- you already know the answer to this question. Black people are not monolith, and we can like different things.
1: So today we invite you to meet us at the Crossworlds.
2: Where we explore the intersectionalities of black people in the profession.
1: All right, so we wanna take this time to have all of our panelists introduce themselves and just tell us a little bit about um, what they're about.
4: Hi, my name is Titus Underwood. I am principal oboe of the Nashville Symphony. I'm originally from Pensacola, Florida. I did my undergrad at Cleveland Institute of Music and my master's at the
3: Juilliard School. There we go. Uh, My name is Keith Wolf. I'm the general director of Opera Birmingham, and I'm a singer by training um, in voice and uh, studied opera, was a tenor, uh, but finished my master's degree and transitioned into the administrative side. I joined Opera Birmingham about five years ago after 14 years with Fort Worth Opera.
5: I'm Jean Snyder, um, singer from as early as I can remember. I learned to sing in the church. I learned to read music in the church. I grew up in a church that focused on four-part a cappella singing. No instruments when I was growing up, just our voices. But that's a rich heritage which I treasure. Uh, I've been an English teacher, I've been a music teacher, um, and I spent 30 years learning about the life and work of Harry T. Burley, and it was a wonderful life journey. Mm -hmm.
6: I'm Colleen Phelps. I'm a host at Nashville Public Radio's 91 Classical. I host a weekly live broadcast, Live in Studio C. As well as the classically speaking podcast where we give Nashville a backstage pass to its classical music. And I'm a percussionist by training and uh, studied at the University of Cincinnati.
7: Uh, My name is Claude Kelly. I'm a singer, songwriter, artist who uh, was born and raised in New York City, started actually classically trained on piano and changed the voice when I went to college. And uh, I've been writing for about ten years across the board—pop, R&B, classical, jazz, uh, rock—and uh, one half of a band with this guy to my left called Lewis York, who just put an album out. But we live—we moved here about four years ago to pursue owning our own company and being in control of our art. So that's my story.
8: My name is Charles Harmon, <laughs> Chuck Harmony. Uh, I like long walks in the park. <laughs> um, I like Cracker Barrel too, but more importantly, I like the piano, that's my main instrument and I've been songwriting and producing in the music business for about 13 years now and I'm at half of uh, the band Lewis York.
2: Okay, so we're just gonna jump right into the hard questions. So we're gonna lead you in just a little bit. Um, so I want you to fill in the blank. When I walk into a room in my professional space and I'm one of the only ones uh i feel or i think blank and you can this might not work for everybody so uh <laughs> uh change it h- how you will anyone want to start
4: I'm, i might be the only person who's the only person at my job <laughs> 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 uh i mean at this point everyone knows who i am but like Uh, Usually when I walk into a room, there's usually a question regarding my presence, whether it be good or bad. And I can usually tell if someone is curious to know in a good way or curious in a bad way. So and at this point, I really don't care. But um, but usually there's always a question regarding my presence. So.
3: (laughs) Do you want us all to try to answer?
2: (laughs) Um. Well, I'll challenge you to say this. So if you, since, if you, I don't know what your experience is, but if you don't have this experience, you don't come from this experience, maybe when you have people of color in your spaces, what, how do you feel like you can make them feel wanted there if they're, if you notice that they're the only ones there? Like, do you have that thought about how they might be feeling in that space?
3: For me, I wanted to try to make sure that, that I am personally engaged with them to not... Make the, to not make them feel that they have to engage with us to welcome them into the space, um, and you know, to recognize that we're different, but in that difference we learn from each other. Um, that seems kind of like a pat answer, um, but it's true. Yesterday, we, uh, I was at an arts education forum in Birmingham, and you know, it was primarily a Caucasian group of people, um, but there were a couple of um, African American women who were heads of organizations, and for me, to make a p- what, I, what I try to do is to make a point to go talk to them and learn about what their work is doing, especially as, um, and opera being stereotypically an elitist art form, um, how can I learn from what they're doing that can influence the work that we might do or how we would engage with a community that wouldn't necessarily look to us as their first choice.
5: Mm-hmm. I would second what he's just said. I always enjoy and make a point of learning to know people um, and I'm very much aware when someone who, is not, who does not look like me is in the space and I want to get to know them and, and help them understand that they're important to what we're doing. I also can tell you this is in no way commensurate with what African Americans deal with. But I have, over the years that I was working on my research on Burley, encountered some suspicion what this white woman is doing, and what does she think she know, knows, and why is she here, and why, why, does, she want, why does she want to know these things? Uh, it's, as I say, not at all commensurate, but there is another side to that, to that, uh, to that story. What I experienced in graduate school
6: quite a bit was that you know, there were plenty of people who looked like, like me, but I was often the only mom around. And what I found was I was doing a lot of emotional labor. And so in general, through my job, I try to be conscientious of the emotional labor of everyone around me to make sure that I don't put on somebody else how do you get comfortable in this space? That I treat everyone in a way that I don't put the emotional labor on them of explaining what they need in a space or why they deserve to be there. That the space needs to be open and that if I'm inviting people in, then the emotional labor is on me.
7: I I was, integration is hard. Um, It's, everyone likes to be in their comfort zone. And as uh, to your point about um, all of, t- all the fine arts, for that matter, being kind of elitist in that, like, you have to have a taste for it or or you have to really w- go seek it, seek it out. I've always found that it's um, amongst black people, you have a conversation, if you go to the opera, or for example, I was at TPAC last weekend seeing a musical and the conversation of how come there's not more of us in the room, mm-hmm. and I give A little bit of slack because it's hard to put yourself in a room where you don't feel like you're comfortable, but I was always taught that integration is a requirement. So I've gotten very used to uh, being one of few in the room, but also I get a kick out of the challenge of proving people wrong. I've kind of built a whole career out of being the unexpected factor in the room and blowing expectations or blowing the stereotypes that you thought were attached to what you saw when I walked in the room. So I've always taken, even when it was a negative situation, taking that as an opportunity to, to shine beyond that. First of all, prove, prove to myself I can do it, but prove to others that might be doubting me because, because of my skin color or my circumstances or my upbringing that I could um, be just as good or better. Mm-hmm. So there's always an opportunity there to rise above and not necessarily be the victim of it, but be the, um, the victor
8: of it. Yeah, to that point, <clears throat> I never feel like a victim when I walk in a room. I've, I've grown enough to know that what I experience is my experience alone. And so um, I try to be conscientious about the fact that I do represent a whole race of people in certain aspects, in certain situations, but I don't feel like a victim and <clears throat> I'm able to move. Accordingly,
3: may I respond to something sure. I take what you say as a challenge to opera specifically because that 's what I know, but to the classical fields in general is we have not done a very good job of representing our communities on our in, in the work we do, and it 's starting to it 's starting to seep into our field um, we We used to talk about color blind casting. Um, that's not good enough anymore. It needs to be color conscious casting where we, I am actively seeking out people that look like my community to put on the stage. And then beyond that, what work can we do that represents our community? Madame Butterfly is a wonderful opera and I, that just came to mind. I'm not picking on Nashville Opera for just having done it. It's a wonderful opera, but it's an opera of an era. And there are works being written now that speak to our broader community now. and so I, you know, I take that, and our industry is starting to realize that we, we can't expect people, anyone, to come into our theater and feel welcomed if they don't see themselves as part of the entirety of the work that we do. And that's slowly starting to change, but there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done there.
4: Um, I want to add something to that because that's a very common conversation, especially in the classical field. They're saying, how can you get more black people in the orchestra? And I tend to don't use terms like people of color because it's very ambiguous. Um, I usually say black because I'm a black American, I'm a black person. I grew up black, so I'm black. (laughs) Dressed in all black. Right, right. so, you know, um, but I I think the biggest thing that that comes into play is – A lot of times we're not getting the work or the positions. It's usually about capital and about money, right? And most people are fighting for these positions because they want to be paid for what they do. To be really simple about it. So I think the reason why a lot of, specifically African-Americans been shut out because we don't have the same resources. Therefore, we're not power players as a group when we walk into a place. Because most people who are power players in in places means they have a group that backs them they have people that they can fall on. So if someone says something to them, there's gonna be a group that comes after them that has money behind them. So a lot of times we're in a space where we're camouflaging or changing this or asking for that. And when someone says, someone asked me, said, how do we get more black people into orchestras? I said, one, make the, the audition system fair and no more conversations and contracts. I want contracts, not conversations. And the thing is, I'm not, I know that people change hearts and change the way that they look, but people have to have an incentive to change a lot of times. Every, we're, the people in here, we're preaching to the choir, we know each other, we know like, we're about the cause and we wanna see the change, we wanna see diversity, but a lot of people, want some people wanna see change, but they lay down with the bullies when the pressure gets on. So how do you change people from, from acting a certain way? You have to have an incentive, which means that you make sure that these people are in those places, you protect those people in those places, and those people who are against it just have to deal with it because you have your contract. So I think, I think that a lot of times I get into how do we treat each other, how I feel. I mean, if, I'm, if you're not paying my, my rent or, or, you know, I'm good. So I, I think that I'm, I'm always want to, I always want to try to push things towards a tangible result, mm-hmm. not just a behavioral result, because we know that when integration happens, people are nicer in public spaces. You know, we're not being called the N-word everywhere. I mean, I don't know now. But but I'm saying I do think that every conversation should always lead to a tangible result every single time. Because I remember I've spoken so many for the I remember I went on a hiatus from speaking on panels because I said, Am I in this room to make the people feel comfortable that they're having the conversation? And then at the end of the day, they cry their tears. And oh, we had to come, we trying, I promise. But you don't want to upset the apple cart. You don't want to like stir it up a little bit because you're trying to put the, what I call the racist light at ease. So I, I, I want us to always have a, what is the result? What is the action item at the end of this? Not necessarily how I behave with you, but how am I getting paid as well? So that's my two cents.
6: Can I add that that's emotional labor? That's, that's exactly what I was talking about. And without a number, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Without an actual number, show me, demonstrate the percent of change mm-hmm. in your organization, your tears are meaningless.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, so I want to pose a question to, to everyone. Uh, whether your uh, answer is yes or no, do you feel seen in your field? And uh, I want to ask this question because even if your question is um yes that might not be exactly a positive answer i know that we heard a little bit about uh representation and for some people i know when you feel like a representative of a group that can be a lot of pressure um that can that can feel as if you're you're expected to act a certain way and then you get into a space where you're molding yourself to uh to fit into what you think you should act like. So I really wanna know um, whether or not any of you guys feel seen in your field um, and whether who you're seen as is comfortable for you.
3: Well, since I have a microphone, I'll just start. Um, Yes, uh, but I think that's because I'm the ultimate stereotype of our field, of the opera field. I'm a white male running a company. Um, I'm a gay man, which is also stereotypical in the opera world. Um, so, I mean, I, I do, but I think, you know, I, I don't know, I, 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 I wouldn't say that that's a good thing because our, as, as we talked about the fields need to change the representation in the fields need to change. So, you know, I, I am by default, uh, seen in my field because I am, I am the field.
7: I would say yes. Now, uh, I think both Chuck and my experience are a little unique because we were, we've both been classically and jazz trained, but we're, we're operating in the pop space. And so the, 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 the conundrum becomes the training and the discipline and the preparation that you're taught when you grow up in conservatories and schools doesn't necessarily apply <laughs> to the pop world. Mm-hmm. So the first half of our career was feeling unseen because of our color, of our technique, and of our mindset about music, so the reason we moved here to Nashville was to find ourselves in the madness. Because we love music to our core, and we were kind of in a system where, like, that's just how, that's a passing thing. It's like it's part of a, a bigger whole. The, the song and the performance and the preparedness and your 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 qualifications are just the light part. Mm-hmm but if you do this, do this, that always matters. Um, And so I think we came here to find ourselves so we could actually be seen for who we are, which is lovers of all kinds of music who take it extremely seriously, who prepare and practice and study, study, study. And so for the first time in the last three or four years, I would say, despite what people see on paper for what they seem successful and awesome and great, um, that's a resume but really feeling seen is bigger than what's on paper. It's, 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 it's being understood, people looking in your eyes, understanding what your soul is trying to express. And the last three or four years have been beautiful because I, I feel seen now um, by the people I'm around, by this panel, literally right now, but just the, uh, the way I'm able to express myself as a black musician in America feels a lot more freeing now than ever before.
6: Um, what I found, where I feel like I'm missing is in the national conversation about new music in classical music, and if you look at you know, some of the funding organizations, there was one in particular nationally where it was, if, when you looked over the last five years, I think it was 10% of their funding had gone to the southeast in the United States, but they labeled themselves a national organization, and you know, it's 30% of the population that lives in the southeast and you know this tiny amount of the, f- I think it was 5%, it was this tiny amount of the funding, even though it's a much larger population, and all the money was going to New York, Chicago, LA. And until I think even the national funding organizations in classical music recognized the Southeast, representation is gonna have a struggle to grow because this is where the HBCUs are, this is where you know, this is where a very diverse population makes its home and where a population that does mix genres more easily mm-hmm. has its home in Nashville. And, you know, until cities like Nashville and Atlanta entered the national arts conversation, representation is going to struggle to grow.
4: Oh, feeling feeling sane. I guess yes and yes and no. I mean, me personally, I feel me personally not. And I always say I like to bring the team like I'm not a token. I'm not here to speak for every black person on the planet. And and yes, I feel like I'm a represent uh, representative of my culture. Um, But it's is very typical for the few of us to be very, very seen And then and then they're like, oh, yeah, this is the exceptional one. Or I've been sanitized. You know, I am the one who's going through all the barriers and everyone feels comfortable. But I I, I do think that there needs to be, um, you know, especially in the in, in my field, there's still a conflict in talking about this subject in general. So people still fighting saying that there are only so few chairs in the orchestra and you know, there's not that many jobs. I mean, what does that sound like? So you know, it's, it's very, very interesting that like the more of us are being seen, the more people feel threatened and more people feel scared. And, I, and I, I'm always about, I, I trust that there's so many black people who can really do this, that if you just don't discriminate in the process, we will be there and we would show up, and we would show out. So I don't, I don't necessarily always um, look for someone saying, hey, let's like look for people and put them there. I say, you know, we, we're good enough to compete, and we're gonna compete, and we're gonna do well, just don't mess with me when I'm there, so.
2: We're gonna shift gears just a little bit. Um, we've come into contact with some people who view blackness as an advantage. Um, I want to know what your thoughts were on this sentiment um, in general. as
4: an advantage. <laughs> I, 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 I I guess I, I don't I think of me as a black person I feel like I have cultural capital is what I call it. Like I grew up you know I, I know everyone here probably grew up differently of course because we're all from different homes but I grew up in a pastor's care, grew up in the church I grew up in a Pentecostal church I mean we speaking in tongues, we falling out, we raising our hands, we dancing. <laughs> So, I mean, and it took a long time for me to feel comfortable, especially in like these very intellectual spaces to say that's the type of church I grew up in. Mm. And there's a lot of culture that comes from that. And most American music has come out of that church with people beating drums and cowbells and dancing and all this stuff. So I feel like that to me feels like an advantage of expression because no one needs to really tell me how to feel music. I grew up in that. So I have a specific voice that comes from a specific community because at that time my dad would play piano. He's an amazing singer. My mom's an amazing singer. So I grew up all around this music and other people sitting up didn't have any musicians in their family. They may have the best lessons. They may have gotten the best technique before I got it, but who cares? But once I learned how to figure out this instrument and connect this technique with this voice, I feel like I have an advantage at that point. So, as far as an artistic expression, now we 're talking about black representation and us being there no, so you know I think like I, like I mentioned before, it has to do with a community that has been deprived of resources because we haven't been paid for all the years we've been here for things and now you have to create all these programs instead of just dumping the resources that are due to those people so that's a whole bigger societal problem but in the arts where we are the reason why we deal with the same things that people talk about in every other field because blacks in America are an exploited class here. People take culture from us but we're not able to own the culture in which we give so Like you guys were talking about ownership. That is dope. Always own your material. But because we don't have so many of us who are a network that can own our things, then we always get boxed out or a lot of our businesses go down because we don't have many people to count on. Just like in the financial crash, the biggest thing between whites and blacks losing their homes in the financial crash is that whites were able to borrow from other relatives to bail them out. How many black folks, you know, give me $5,000, $5,000. So we have to really think about our context within society when we're talking about these black issues within the arts.
8: Well, as a black man that that genuinely loves himself and genuinely loves um, his upbringing, it definitely is an advantage to be black. But that's just my perspective, you know. I love myself, so, but at the same time as a, in the music field, I feel like it's a it 's a real disadvantage for black people because first of all we're boxed into whatever whatever genre we 're in what what they know us for first and so a lot of times we're creative people we're expressive people, and so there's a a whole lot of things that we want to do and because of financial reasons and because we're boxed in a lot of times we don't get to explore those things as as some other people get to explore them, but I, I, personally, I would rather lean into the advantages than the disadvantages of it.
7: i would, I would just add, because you, you mentioned something earlier about uh, when you were talking about just uh, how we're the most exploited. Um, just having sat in some of those boardrooms and those conversations that happen about who gets the job, who gets the record deal, who gets the, the exposure, who gets the media time, Everybody knows that blackness is an advantage. Um, The question of who gets to showcase it is always the bigger issue. So it's always about, and when they're looking for talent, when people are looking for talent, especially in the mainstream world, they know where to find the new trend, they know where to find the new dance step, they know where to find the new style, the new edge. Whether they give it to the person who they found it from is a different conversation but blackness is absolutely an advantage it's the advantage, it's it's a the black american experience is america's best advantage and when you leave the country and you travel outside you realize how unique what we create here is no one can do what we do here and it's birthed out of the pain and the joy of what's happening here and it's very clear not just in music but in sports in fashion in business in every single part of our of our of our culture that what happens in black communities creatively often first is a gold mine. It's a gold mine. It's, uh, and the fight now, like you said, is to main, reclaim or maintain ownership of the gold mine, that, of the goose that lays the golden egg. Uh, but I've sat in enough meetings with people that did not look like me and, and was sometimes appalled and sometimes in agreement that like, of of where they knew the sources were. <laughs> it's not a mystery they know they they know where to get the get the the uh the creativity from when they can't find it and, and who to sign and who to sign to to teach other people how to do it so it, that that's a, that those are real conversations that happen behind closed doors it's not by accident that uh styles and and, and sounds and 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 influences get stolen it's it's often purposeful
1: so Uh, Because we have a lot of different uh, perspectives and identities on this panel, and we're trying to get into intersectionality and knowing how that affects um, each of your careers and your arts um, and and what you put out into the world, Uh, we want to know what are some of the intersectional uh, aspects of your identities, and how has that affected your personal experience um, in both your professional and your creative spaces, which for pretty much everyone, those two things overlap.
7: (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) I mean, if you see my sweater, it's called Weirdo Workshop. This is our company here in Nashville. And it's built off the fact that there's no box to put us in. And we were tired of being put in boxes because I literally grew up listening to everything. I started playing the Suzuki method of piano at two and a half on a stack of phone books so I could reach the piano. What I hear in my head 24-7 is classical music, is things I played growing up and and, and things I still listen to. Um, And like you said in the intro, you you like Cardi B, and uh, uh, I can't remember what the person was, but I'm with you, Hezekiah Walker. Um, So more challenging than being the only black person in a room in a specific field, I think, is having to explain or justify the fact that you are good at several different things or that it's okay to uh, blend genres, blend your influences and not be known in a box. Um, and we've taken that issue as a company and made that the, what we're proud of. So the weirdo part of our company is, we reason we call ourselves weirdos is not because we, we like being outcasts, it's, it's the acceptance that you have a unique upbringing that might involve gospel, um, a Kojic background, or a classical background. I grew up Episcopal, so totally opposite. Pipe organs and handbells was my, was my experience growing up. And, but I was walking around literally like in church rehearsals singing TLC and getting in trouble for it. So I've always had to find the way to, make, to find a, a platform for myself that made sense for all the music I heard in my head. So it's a daily struggle to uh, marry all the things you hear in your head and make that your career and make it realistic for yourself. But it's a beautiful challenge. And I think now more than ever, with um, the advent of a lot of technology that allows you to express yourself and these kind of conversations you're justifying why it's okay to find a, a niche for yourself that allows you to do all the things you are so you don't feel stifled as a, as a musician, as a creative person.
2: What influence do you believe your art or work has had
6: on your audience? I try to let Live and Studio C stretch the definition of what classical music is, and by bringing in as many things that cross over as possible, I'm hoping that that is the effect that it has, Um, and in general playing, that's where I try to live as well, I sort of stretch the definition for the audience of what music is and um, but with live in studio c again i think and i think this kind of goes back to the question on intersectionality that that the more diversity we bring in the richer the art becomes
8: i think for me um, well hopefully for me uh, my work has been a source of um, inspiration and revelation for people you know i try to make sure that everything that i do create creatively is from a spiritual place and not from an egotistical place so that people can feel more than i hear and so with my music and with my creativity that's what i'm I'm hoping that uh, the impact is is inspiration
5: audience has been as a teacher probably for more years than most of you've been alive <laughs> so, and always especially in teaching a class like intro to music or history of music I made sure that the course was more diverse than the textbook uh, I my students needed to understand that it wasn't just white people that were creating this music and um, I hope that that stayed with them, I, I can't prove that, but um, that was always my intention that, that my course was much more diverse than what they were expected to know.
1: So, um, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about bringing other voices into the conversation. Uh, so as hosts of Classically Black, we created this because we didn't have a community and, um, and we didn't really see ourselves reflected in the field that we were in. So we have the show where we talk to guests and we uh, highlight people as black excellence and all that. And, and it's sort of just like, I'm black, you black like what are we doing you know mm-hmm. exactly like but i'm 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 curious as to when you're um when you're a white person who is in a position of power to bring other voices um into the conversation into your work um how do you go about doing this in a way that's inclusive and what are you looking for if you're not looking for yourself because as someone as we've created this platform for ourselves we're looking for people who are like us but also you know have their own individual things going on. Um, and so when we, see, when we see black people doing a thing at classical music, we're like, oh, we gotta have this person on. But how do you um, identify people that you feel would be valuable to the work that you're doing um, when you may not necessarily have that, that sort of connection
3: with them? For me, I look at what we do as an opera Genre as telling stories and song, and I want the stories we tell to reflect our community. And so, as we've started this journey in the last four years of changing what we do, I want our art to challenge me. So, I'm I'm coming at this from a couple different thoughts, um, trying to make it make sense. so i realized that the stories i'm going to hear may not necessarily be my experience but i need to i can still learn from that and even though it's a different experience it's still the same emotional content um, that art should challenge our stereotypes that art should challenge our perceptions in the world Um, so for me that means actively seeking out work that other artists are doing that i'm not naturally going to come across in putting out my audition notice and saying, we're gonna hold auditions. How can I how can I find communities that are creating art that is powerful and inspiring and go hear that and then have that change me and my view and find resources that I wouldn't otherwise find? I'm not sure I'm answering the question very well.
5: Can, can I ask you a question? Um, I have recently learned uh, more about how many black composers of opera there are mm-hmm. And I was at a conference in Ann Arbor that was organized by Louise Taupin, uh, Dr. Louise Taupin, uh, several weeks ago. There were about a dozen or more black composers of opera. Uh-huh. And it struck me, and I commented on this yesterday, it struck me that the, t- the, the subject of these operas is what's going on. Uh-huh. Not only what's going on now, but we heard the first act performed of the opera Edmonia Lewis, about a 19th century black sculptor who had to go to Italy to have a career. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know we all know how many musicians have found that necessary as well. My observation is when I'm in a, um, the, the Bendham Center in Pittsburgh and they're showing the um, opera about Josh Gibson, the audience is primarily African American. They're paying for those tickets. They're showing up. The same thing happened in the Carnegie M- Museum of Art when they, had, they featured Thad Mosley. They had a greater attendance than they had ever had for any other, why, don't they ever get it? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of amazing work being done in opera right. by black composers. Is it showing up?
3: It's starting to. It's been a slow change. Um, in the, I would say in my in the five years I've been in in Birmingham, uh, the industry has started to to realize we have not been equitable. We have not provided the resources. We've not provided the training, uh, and so we are now looking. At, we're now seeking out those voices and how do we support? How do we provide those resources? How do we provide a stage? And. I, I, I can, I think of this um, as the movie industry. Um, last year, last year, or the year before, uh, Black Panther was the highest-grossing movie, and you know, that you know, I went to see that twice. It's you know, it's not that it. Yes, it was a uh, the representation of seeing black people on in the movie theater and black people being creative is is amazingly powerful. But that still speaks to me, um, and I think we're just now realizing Opera Field. Um, that that diversity on the stage doesn't disqualify the people that aren't on the stage from still enjoying that. Um, as, if we're looking at doing Marriage of Figaro next year, and as a friend of mine said, I don't need to see another white Figaro, pardon my bluntness. Um, I need to cast artists who will say something as equally interesting probably more interesting if they are because they are more diverse. I need to find female directors to direct these shows because it deals with questions we are still dealing with of assault and right. intimidation. Um, we are really behind the times in that, but we are starting to realize that there is a broader range of work being done. How do we help promote that?
6: I'll add that you can't be afraid to look at your own numbers And actually, look at your statistics. Look at your season. Look at your representation. Make a pie chart for yourself. And if it doesn't at least reflect the population, if not better, of your area, you have work to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, Live in Studio C was a fairly diverse show last year. Ages, time periods of pieces. We had a lot of local music. And that was just because Nashville provided. It was just, it was here. I just had to Look, and I had to. I looked at the previous season, and I thought, okay, how can it be better? What space can I offer? And I think you you can't be afraid to just look at your numbers and actually confront how much how diverse has your show or company or whatever been, and then how can you do better?
4: I like to comment on that. Um, I think a very big, like you were saying before, there's so many black composers that did opera. And one of my biggest thing is think about black composers. And I mean, we've been writing since the 1700s, 1600s. And of course, during the height of colonialism, slavery, we all know that a lot of things weren't, a lot of things were lost. However, uh, my, my idea is I would say that just representation of a black person on a stage isn't uh, enough. I think the people who, the creators of the music itself And those people expressing. So when, you know, when European immigrants came here, they brought their music with them. That's why a lot of the music that we're playing here is music that's from certain parts of Europe. And those people show people the inflections of the music or the language of the music. Then it went into the conservatories and then they taught us how to play it. And that's how that goes. So imagine if there is, you know, I'm a black person. I teach a kid, you know, Florence Price. And then they have etude books on Florence Price. And then you go to conservatory and they teach you the nuance of Florence price that's how that happens there's a whole system that goes all the way from the beginning up into the performance stage and if there is just a black person just playing mozart i'm just a black person and i think that's great too however i don't want to fall into the box of i can do it too i also come from a rich heritage and culture that creates music and i can express that and people say isn't that stereotypical and it's stereotypical for an Italian guy to sing Puccini, whatever. Right. So, like, I'm going to be just as proud and I'm going to celebrate my music just as much as everybody else. So I do think that we as creators and not just representation, uh, we need to go even further with that conversation. So,
2: I think you kind of answered our next question, which is, like, our, do you think that in your respective fields, we're doing enough to include people of color in our stories? And, I mean as a classical musician i have my own um thoughts on this because like you said having me seeing a black person in orchestra doesn't really make me go yeah i could do that too because i know that there's a lot of things that go into that Um, we really have to program black composers and program black operas Um, but do you think where you are your organizations are doing enough to include people of color black people in the conversation
3: we're starting to as i've said we're behind um, where I think we should be um, but this past summer um, Glamour Glass Opera premiered um, The Opera Blue which was about uh, an African-American teenager who was shot in New York. Um, the um, Opera Theatre St. Louis premiered Fire Shut Up In My Bones based on the uh, uh, New York Times best-selling. So we are starting to, Opera Birmingham, me specifically, No, we are still working there. We are new to this. Um, the company is new to the idea of presenting works that are not 17th and 18th century, um, but we're starting to um, and actively. You know, as we are moving forward in our programming, we do one chamber opera every year, um, and we, we are looking at that piece specifically being something that relates to our community in the broadest sense. And you know, we are in Birmingham. Um, we have a, a cultural history we're still coming to terms with. What works can we find that can help in that conversation to be part of that conversation. So it's starting, but it's very far behind.
6: Okay. So, um, oh, you look like
1: I don't want to do
6: that. I'll say that public radio works very hard on representation, and it's a constant question. Like we have a, you know, when if you report a story, you have a checklist, and one of the checklists is: Have you represented every voice? So that's I I like that checklist for everything now because it it is always a reminder. Um classical music within Nashville, I would say it just every organization just needs to be conscious of growth. I think you know, I I'll suggest that also, representing women's voices needs some growth. There are some organizations who really have it on the forefront of their mind, and you can tell who's thinking about it and who has to be reminded. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really obvious when you look <laughs> at a season.
4: <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can add to that. Um, I, I think the main thing is that, uh, like I said previously, uh, I take it a responsibility myself as a black person <laughs> to learn a new piece by a black composer. throughout the year. Like I challenge all my colleagues, no one's gonna play it if we don't play it. Like I'm not gonna tell someone else to play something I'm not gonna play myself. I'm ashamed, but you put this off. No, you gotta, like you said, I'm gonna do classically black. I'm gonna do my own podcast. If someone says we need more black composers, then Titus, how many black composers have you played this year? So I take responsibility myself to learn, the, I, I realized that I had been socialized into something and thinking, I remember when I used to sit on stage and I remember when I was going to conservatory, I literally thought to myself, oh, I don't wanna get bossed into that black circuit. I don't wanna be labeled into that because mm-hmm. you know what that means. And I was like, and, and, you, and some people go so far in that direction that they actually lose themselves and you see them in professional space and they talking to you, Like it's a room full of white people and it's just you and them. You want to be like, yo, what's up? Hello, how you doing today? It's like, (laughs) what? So I'm not I'm 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 saying that uh, I I challenge my community as well to mine our, our our art and catalog our music so that when it does it go when it goes into that space, we are the people who people have to go to. Because if we don't start mining our own music to be completely honest, you're going to show up to a class and then there's going to be a white lady teaching you about black music, being straight up. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying like, I I do think that um, there's much more difficult conversations that need to be had because it goes both ways. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with white people teaching the music. That's not what I'm saying. It's not the point that I'm making here. The point that I'm making is, is that it is, it's a shame when I go to talk to you know, students at Curtis or whatever, whatever conservatory, and they have no idea about any black composers because it's inferior to them. Brahms is better, Mozart is better, Bach is better. I mean, that stuff is cool, but it's not, I mean, ours, the, the water isn't colder on that side. So I, I think that there's a whole canon of music that needs to be mined by us because we know the inflections. We know the expression. No one needs to teach me how to play that stuff. Because when I hear them, I'm like, why are they playing this little so square? I need some swag. To, and we know what that means. When you say put some stank on the track, we know what that means. <laughs> so I'm saying I, 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 I really, really want to evolve it beyond just that representation because I'm a representative, you know, I hear that all the time. Like the, the first article that came out me being natural, the first black this, and it's like, that's cool. But I come from a culture too. So there's a whole, I always say diversity isn't just colors and numbers of colors, it's culture, it's voices, it's perspectives, it's point of views, it's advice, it's all this stuff that comes with it. So I don't want to just be the black person playing Mozart all the time because they can get some, you know, Viennese got to do that and probably can do it better than I can because that's his natural expression, cool. So I I, I just want to keep pushing that a little bit more and I feel like that hasn't been a conversation that's been had that often within these main spaces, so.
1: Um, so I wanted to respond uh, with a question a little bit to what Colleen was saying about like representing every voice and like taking every box in that way. Um, people of color has been quite the buzz phrase, uh, lately. And, um, it's, it's, people have, have expressed the frustration of that, uh, people of color is such a huge umbrella and includes a lot of things underneath it. And even, even the word black is a huge umbrella and includes a lot of, uh, different things and and types of people and, and identities and perspectives, uh, beneath it. And, and we've, encountered that was classically black podcasts and people be like oh you should expand and you should talk to this person and that person would be great and we're like that's wonderful I'm sure they're lovely but this is classically black podcast mm-hmm. and we mean that and I, w- I just want to know what people what, what you all think about um the the phrase people of color and is in lumping black people and and all the different cultures that come with uh, that phrase into one and how how do you go about representing everyone in a meaningful way and not just saying, well, okay, well we programmed that check, we did that. All right, great. You know, that sort of thing.
4: Can I add something I'm make you quick, I promise. Uh, this is like my wheelhouse, <laughs> this this question. I always say that the reason why I, I get away from terms like people of color it's because we have to look, I look at diversity as a spectrum, right? So there are people who are closer to whiteness, who've been more approved to whiteness. There are people who put on their senses that they're white, who are non-American white people. And we've been real about the conversation. Um, and I always say people's proximity, especially to blacks who have been, we're talking about America, blacks who have been descendants of slaves. Proximity to that shows how you're treated in America. So if you're looking at poor neighborhoods, even in Nashville, these people have been here for for generations here. If you go to—I'm from Pensacola. People in there generations. My family's from Alabama, from Mississippi. You know, you're talking about those black people. You know, those people who've been underrepresented in America. And I say that those people have a specific history and lineage here and have not had the resources put into their communities. And then people—then by proxy, people say— I struggle to, I, I have, I'm this or I'm that, but have not had that struggle here, and bu- and we built the resources here in this country. And I want people to get more detail into the fine nuances of diversity itself, because just, just pigmentation isn't necessarily an indicator that me and that person are both fighting white supremacy. There are people trying to find their place within white supremacy, and trying to get resources to get their piece of the pie without destroying white supremacy. So I I do think that when I say, uh, and I remember someone was, I was saying that there's so many different types of black people throughout the diaspora. And all those differences should be celebrated. There's nothing wrong with that. My fiance is Nigerian. I celebrate her for that. I'm black American. She celebrates me for that. That there's beauty in that diversity. But there's also cultural nuances that I have to understand from her culture, and she understands from my culture, and we learn and grow in that way. And people are like, oh, there are two different types of black people in America. Mind blown. It's like there are 220 million black people in Nigeria, there are over a thousand languages there, guys. Like, that's more than America. Just really think about that. That's more languages that are spoken in America in one country in the continent of Africa. Okay. So I want us to really understand when we're talking about these things, that sometimes even as black American people, that we're not squashing out other black people's voices that come from different places. So it isn't, I can't be like, you black, you black, and they're like, I have a specific culture and I come from this. Yes, I'm black, but I'm this, and I'm that. But also I want us to really, really understand that like, when we're talking about the spectrum and I look at diversity charts, usually black people are the last people that benefit. It usually I look at it as a trick bag, and I see the people who are there who don't look like me. And they say, well, I'm, I'm black if you look at me. And it's like, oh, or if you, my, you know, this, that, and the other. But there is, there is a caste system within complexion within this art form as well. There is that. I'm a dark-skinned black man. There's something about my presence that sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable, especially if you're standing at your ATM. So I'm saying there is, there, there is, we have to be really, really real about what America is. And I think that we run away from the conversation of what America really is and the history in America from treating black people, especially black people who fought for people. We have been the moral conscience of America for centuries. And then people piggyback on that and benefit off of that without given us the resources that we are due. So I want to have a true conversation about that because when I go into a room, I say, I'm speaking for black people. And it's not me discriminating against anyone else, but we haven't got even a crumb off the table yet. We own .2% of the wealth in America. Whites own 90%. And most black people have been in this country just as long or longer than most white people in this country. So. That's a bigger societal thing, but when I talk about that, I want people to have that that in mind about black people in this country.
6: I think the term, you know, using the term person of color comes from in classical music, some of it comes from just trying to bo- bust out of a box of whiteness. So you have to look beyond what's there, and what's there is not white. So then once you look toward, okay, bring in a composer who's not white. And then you do have to look at have I then represented my community? Like in Nashville, we have also the country's largest Kurdish community, and that community's heavily underrepresented in the sort of formal classical spaces, even though it's huge. So there, I agree that the term is not nearly specific enough, but I think that's the origin for it becoming such a buzzword for us in in spaces that curate series of things. Um, but I, I agree that there's, there's a lot of work to be done if that's the only statistic you're studying.
7: I agree with everything you were saying about just the fact that just the, the blanket word black or people of color definitely, it may have worked for a time. <laughs> at a time, but now I think that uh, the health of our society, of our culture, both within the, I have to use it now, the black community and, uh, and for those outward looking in is at risk if we don't, the good health is at risk if we don't start actually seeing people, like you said, for all their different nuances within the black, the black community and for what they, I'm gonna use a really crude, crude, crude example that might get me in trouble, but I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> Has anyone seen the documentary, Blackfish? It's about, it's about, it's actually about Sea World. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good example because it takes all the human, it takes us having to see just, as humans out of it. As a human being, just to show you what happens, I, to me, orcas are all the same. They're just, they're killer whales. They're all black and white and they, and they all swim and they do the, what killer whales do. And the reason the, the documentary is interesting is that in a, in a very similar capacity what they realized was that they were catching them because they were black and white and putting them in a pool at sea world because they're all black and white and they all look alike so they should be happy not realizing that killer whales orcas travel in pods they speak different languages they have different dialects they have different traditions they have different behaviors so you've you literally plucked different <laughs> tribes of Black whales and put them in a in a pool, and said, "Well, there's the black whales. There, there's the, and and they're all one name, and so that they were actually killing themselves, committing suicide, and were depressed and were misunderstood as an entire species, because the crude thinking was that they all look alike, and if you throw them in the pool together, then they'll figure out how to make it work, and so." The, the part of digging deeper and seeing people to, br- that's why I said it's crude, because you really shouldn't compare people to whales. <laughs> but but the point is that it goes deeper than just saying the, p- the people of color or black people, to your point, there are specific, beautiful, interesting nuances that make people from all walks of life with all different experiences, definitely all different skin complexions um, and their experiences with, with the caste system. My family's from Jamaica where, where, Whiteness isn't so much the issue as as the shade of your skin is the issue and how much light-skinned people get as opposed to dark skinned people and what your hair looks like in the city you grow in and how much money you have. So I also agree that it's important to make sure that we are we first of all, black people to towards each other are sensitive and understanding of the fact that there are those nuances and those differences that make us interesting, and that those stories all need to be heard and told, or given the platform to be told, because it's not, there's not just one black story. There's a gazillion, and that's just the ones that, thank God for the ones that have the opportunity to get on the stage and speak, but all the ones that haven't been spoken, and are on, everyone's got a different tale. Every family legacy is a different thing. And so if we're not seeing and listening, and, and like you said, check, going through that checklist, of is everyone here being included? Um, just by listening to the differences, then we're actually making society sicker as opposed to healthier, which is a dangerous place to be.
2: Um, What initiatives do you believe are working to get more people of (laughs) color Uh, now you can't say it anymore. I can, right, like now I can't. <laughs> what initi- initiatives do you believe are working? So we talked about like what y'all not doing, so let's... How we've all failed. Let's just... And then I have to you know what are some things that are working, and if you are an administrator, what are some of the things that you you are doing that you believe are working well? Um, and then, of course, uh, Claude and Chuck, what y'all be doing with the... in that industry. Getting more people of color into what initiatives are working
3: over there as well. I I'll speak for Opera um, Opera America, our national service organization, um, is has started grant funding to support composers and librettists of color uh, as an industry, were representing a you know a wide range of of works. But what's been interesting in the in the individual companies is those companies are focusing on the communities that are part of their area. So um, Houston Grand Opera um, has presented a lot of works of Um, Latino, uh, Latinx composers, but also um, stories of the Vietnamese community because they have a a big community there. But then you go to Opera Philadelphia, um, which has a large African-American population, and their focus has been on black composers. So I think um, as the broader industry, we've realized the inequity that we have not been funding um, and and have started that resource, and then individual companies focusing on their people um, and their communities. I think me personally, uh, and talking with artists and friends, uh, realizing um, you know, I go to New York every year to hear auditions. Well, not everybody can afford to go to New York. Um, so, how do I break down that barrier and just change the way that I that I interact with artists and and. Uh, which is i I want to start doing more regional auditions, allow you know go to communities where I know that there are wonderful artists that they just aren't typically coming to me. How do I hear those voices, and then realizing we 're in a digital world i don't need to see people in person on a stage in a room singing for me um, there's work being created and shared in other ways that I can that i I just need to change the way I think about how I hear people so those are just a few things that are starting and There's a lot more work to be done, but we're finally starting down that path.
8: Well, um, the initiative that we started was starting a black-owned business to house um, the creativity of black artists. And not just the artists, but actually building a community by which a lot of different kind of creatives can can find solace and find a, a safe space to to work on their craft, work on their gift, express that to the world.
4: Um, I uh, work with an organization called Gateways where uh, they are black musicians of African descent all come and do classical music together. I think um, that's a great initiative. I also work with Chennake out in London. Um, and I, I think the reason why I kept harping on people of color because it buys into gradualism and I think people want you to buy into gradualism like it's one of those things oh we we can do this for these other groups but we'll get to y'all soon because we know you're the most offensive group so I think I think it's um, I think the more that people are being more upfront and honest about the conversation and I usually remind uh, dare I say my white colleagues and uh, all all across the country, and things that sometimes the discomfort of talking about blackness is just a conversation for you when the conversation's over, the discomfort's done, but I live in this space that 's why I have so much to bring to the conversation that makes you feel uncomfortable and i I, I think that it 's okay to feel uncomfortable because that 's where the growth is and if you 're not feeling uncomfortable then we 're not having the right conversation so it's it 's it's, it's all about us growing and like I said at the end of the day, tangible results, and <laughs> that we're always putting resources into these places and really, really seeing these communities that have been there that's been fighting there for a long time to make sure that their voices are being heard. And I said the only difference is is that we've been here the whole time, it's just that now we're able to speak in some places without violence being inflicted on us. So is is very very important that we recognize this rich history and that whiteness isn't the center and that whiteness is a very very new phenomenon in human history much newer than blackness so we have to and i always tell my white friends study black people study black history to l- learn about themselves white people have to learn black history to learn about themselves So really come to terms with all those concepts, just like me, a black person with the last name Underwood. I'm a descendant of slaves. That is a harsh reality to come in contact with. And many white people, you've had some pretty terrible ancestors and people that probably came straight from your lineage in your family. Come to grips with that and then see how you can turn that around and make a better future that we're not inflicting that on other people instead of saying, oh, it's nothing but good white people around me. Only good white people. I don't know where the races are. None of my friends are. No, it's just that your presence doesn't bring about that reaction in the people that you know. So I really want us to really get deep into these conversations that all of us have to really look at each other and push the ball forward because it'll make a better society. And to be honest, it'll be more fiscally profitable. If we're all working together. So, yeah.
1: So. What do you all, uh, some of you as as black artists and then some of you as people who are experienced in, um, in administration of the arts, um, what do you want other administrators to know about approaching a culture that they may not be a part of or familiar with?
3: The, again, the opera, opera industry is very new to the idea of civic practice. Um, We in the past have always said you know, we we need to adjust the price of our tickets and people will come. Um, Then we started saying colorblind casting. We need to have people of color on the stage and people will come. No, they won't. We're not telling those stories. We've finally come to the realization of we are part of a community and we need to be a part of that community. We need to be guests in spaces that we don't normally go to. And learn those stories, learn, learn the learn the broader history of our people as, of our specific space of, of our country and and hear what other people are saying, and then how do we learn from that, and how do we help provide a platform for artists that we don't normally see tell their stories so I don't, am I, I hope I, hopefully I'm starting to answer a question there. Um, we are, I am, because I can't speak for everybody, I can speak for myself, um, wanting to put ourselves in that uncomfortable space of learning and being challenged and how do I then change me personally and change the work that we do to be a better community, to make a better community.
6: There's just a lot of listening. Administratively, you just you need to listen and you need to ask yourself if your organization is a reflection of your community. Just listen.
3: And I mean, specifically this year, I've learned, I think I knew this but never really thought about it, that there are certain communities that I will be welcomed in and there are certain communities that will not trust me. And it's not an act of distrust. It's a historical... You've not let us be part of your community, so why should we listen to you? So we're this um, last Thanksgiving there was a shooting of an African American man at a mall, and because of that, we are wanting to have the conversation of why are we still having why are why are people of color why are black people specifically being shot at a at a disproportionate rate. So we're doing a piece in our chamber opera called Independence Eve this year, um, which is explores that changing racial dynamic in our country last year we did a piece called glory denied which um, tells the story of the longest longest held American POW we had a natural conversation with the department of veterans affairs to have conversations about mental health and that came easy this new piece we're not making those connections because we have not created that trust in the the, uh, the Opera Birmingham specifically, has not been a part of our bigger community. So why should, when I make a call to the uh, uh, Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, why should, and, and say we're gonna do this show and you know we want to have you be a part of it, why should they trust that we're there? So we're still learning and listening is that is that big thing of realizing we need to be parts of the community so that we can hear those stories, and then, how do we be a part of that, and not just expect anyone to come and see what we're doing?
2: So we're gonna wrap it up with uh, with one more uh, with one more question. There are people um, in these spaces that don't feel like they belong, and we wanted to know if you had a word of encouragement or advice that you could offer to them.
5: Uh, one of the things that gives me hope is this still on. <laughs> okay, um, I have recently learned of. Two small orchestras, based in New York City, which is very, of course very diverse, have been founded specifically to be young, diverse, and, and oriented towards social justice in the way they operate. Uh, one of them I just heard um, a few days ago, performing in Erie, Pennsylvania. It, it's called um, The Dream Unfinished. You know that? um that kind of small community based organization needs to spread that um people taking it on themselves without a lot of funding but but making that those those concerns um addressing them very directly
7: speaking to people that don't feel like they belong you said yeah um, that can be a lifetime of work to feel accepted or to feel comfortable in your skin. So it's hard for me to say, just like get over it and and and, and accept that you're great. Um, I'm currently going through daily working of justifying my existence as part of the struggle of there's the insecurity of being in this society. There's also this, the double insecurity of being a musician and having to perform and having to present yourself in hopefully your best light in front of people, Um, but what's I can always say what's worked for me. Um, Your job every day is to learn to love yourself more. And it sounds really cheesy and cliche, but the more you love yourself, the more you'll do the research about your culture, the more you'll do the research about who you are and about your spirituality. And with that homework, Comes a lot more self love, which makes you comfortable in any single any room you're ever in, because you know that just there's a lineage to who you are, there's a legacy to who you are, Uh, your your DNA means something. Um, So I found that outside of focusing on the career aspect of fitting in, which is secondary to you, your your job is just learning who you are and how you exist in this in this city community world planet whole thing. It's more important that you do the daily work of finding out who you are. And, and it's, it's a hard job, but the, the payoff is that you'll never come up empty. Even on the bad days, there's a lesson to be learned and the lessons turn into tools that make you comfortable in places where you might have felt uncomfortable before. Um, and that's literally how I've gotten through Awful times, nerve-wracking times, when I was the alien in the room, when that when I was the majority in the room. Sometimes that still can be a, a, a complicated thing. So, uh, learning to believe in who you are and why you matter in the room um, is important. And in terms of the pr- the presentation of yourself, um, what's always gotten me over the jitters of feeling uncomfortable is. You cannot want a curse. Yeah. You cannot fuck up if you're telling the truth. Someone else might react poorly to what your truth is, but your nervousness and your existence in the room cannot be wrong if you're, if you're, if you're performing, and you find the truth, the honesty in what you're playing, what you're singing, what you're presenting, and the, and the truth about why you're there and why you deserve to be there, removes a lot of fear and doubt from the equation. And that's what we're t- talking about, is, bat- is battling the fear and the doubt. Um, existence is a complicated thing to overcome, but, and like I said, it's a daily struggle, but learning, to learning, learning yourself is the best advice I can give.
6: Performing in any way is incredibly vulnerable. It's an incredibly vulnerable act, and I think in general, my goal is to create an environment of welcoming when I host performers, and so that all I, all I can say is just an extension of that, that you're welcome here, and I just have to keep repeating it. And let the actions speak for themselves as much as I can. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we wanted to open it up for questions that you, you might have for the panelists. Yep. <laughs> okay, hi. Um, so I was like in my childhood, right? I was like um, I was raised in a predominantly white area, so at a very young age, I was like this ball of chocolate and I was like, oh no, I need to blend in. So I dipped myself in this white chocolate and I was like, oh no, that didn't work. And so I dipped myself in chocolate that I thought was originally me. So like now, I'm trying to drill back in to the center and it's like a big, weird, like personal, cultural, ooh, <laughs> cultural and like identity, uh, like, journey, and I was wondering, like, for anyone who's ever gone through that experience, what was, like, what did you treasure about it, and what would you change? Because, like, you know, you know.
4: I always say, I mean, I've been, I mean, I grew up in a predominantly black space, but my adulthood has been in a predominantly white space. And I think you always have to keep a piece of yourself. Never allow anyone to take the most sacred parts of yourself. I always say the child of yourself. Always keep that. That's yours. No one can take that from you. And once someone takes that from you, then you're going to be all, you're blowing in the wind. You don't know where you're going to land. But know that you have a center that's yours. That's your experience. And I think that was how I, that's how I keep myself. I keep a piece of myself. Even if I'm like, hello, I'm Titus today, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, I? and I, I have those parts of myself that I keep that are sacred. So know what's sacred to you. I mean, write down what was sacred to me. What is mine? what is culturally mine, and what I'm not gonna give out, what I'm not gonna sacrifice. Even if I'm in a specific space and I need to operate in a certain way, I still keep that part of me. So, that's my two cents. I I wouldn't
8: shun any
7: of it. My my experience is very similar to yours. I grew up in, I was the only black kid in the white private schools in New York City, and and I wasn't sure what that meant. I was the, all the layers of chocolate you said, Mm -hmm. but you start to find that that's what makes you you. You learn you tools that maybe other people didn't learn by being in all these different experiences. That, that'll make you a unique businesswoman, a unique creative person, and a unique friend and all those things. So to absolutely know who you are and, and, and find the blend or, or the comfortability that makes you able to sleep at night. But nothing that happens, um, I just personally don't believe that um, any experience that God brings you through is something you should be peeling away. It's, it, it, it's a tool that, that you're gonna need maybe later on. So, uh, and I found even in the last three years just living here that all the compartments I had, oh, those, these are this, this, is, this is what I learned when I was at the white conservatory. This is when I went to Berkeley and this is when I was in New York and this is my Jamaican, pe- my Jamaican family here. They all start to blend if you can figure out how to use them all to your advantage to make you a standalone individual so it's 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 none of it is none of it should be shamed. All of it is strength.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much. Please give a round of applause to this amazing panel. Um, I'm just so grateful. This has been a really thick conversation, and I hate to cut it off. I only am doing this because as a, as we are a part of these efforts, we are hosting Opera Birmingham in auditions here in Nashville at Tennessee State University. Yes today okay so we're working with these other organizations to be a part of that change all right so thank you to all of these panelists thank you to all of you to our moderators amazing questions amazing thoughts thank you for all of your input your wisdom um, that is it if we can uh, Jasmine if you don't mind we're gonna get a picture of everybody oh firstly I also got to thank mr. Shannon Sanders this is a Shannon Sanders production <laughs> He has teched and engineered this, uh, this session. This is going to, we've, we're offering this, I just will say, we're offering this particular session as a podcast for classically black. So they have free reign with it however they want to do. So we're so grateful to them for allowing, for, uh, for uh, having this time and bringing what they bring to us here at Tennessee State and to the Burley Festival. Right. Thank you.